Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. Today we're going to do a special uh, podcast that's just going to be me, Mike Day, talking about bishops. And this is going to be a supplement that you can use with the pastoral epistles, Timothy, Timothy, and Titus. I mentioned it in the podcast before, and I really wanted to do this. And so uh, this this podcast is definitely one that it's going to be more geared towards people that want to know a little bit more of the history. It's less devotional in that aspect. It's not something that you're probably going to share in a Sunday school lesson but it's just really good background on the history of the pastorals as it applies to bishops and what we know about history. And so here we go. Uh, the first thing I want to say is, and I'm, and I'm pretty, pretty sure this is good. This is, we just, we just don't know. What I mean by this is we don't know when bishops first arose in Christianity. We're dealing with a highly oral culture. And so you know, Hugh Nibley talks this as as the time when the lights went out. There's a big black hole in our history um, after the time of Jesus, uh, basically from you know about 40 A.D., 30 A.D. to about 100. To about uh, by the time we get a guy by the name of Ignatius, it's right writing right around 110. So there's several decades in there where we just don't have stuff. Now, clearly, you have the epistles, the Pauline epistles, and those are happening in the 40s, 50s, 60s, in that time frame. And then in the early 60s, uh, the apostolic message, those lights go out. And so if you want to tighten the window, you're looking at a black hole of time somewhere between, you know, 62 to about 110. But there's, there's darkness in there where we just don't know historically what's happening. And so the first argument in in we're not going to unpack this here, but there's all this, this scholarship out there on what is an essential or an authentic Pauline epistle. And we essentially have Paul writing to the churches in the, what we call the, uh, the authentic Pauline epistles. And in these texts, he's not writing to the bishops of those churches. Um, who's he writing to? Well, he's writing to house churches, the heads of house churches, and he's not writing to bishops. Uh, and the argument from scholarship is why isn't Paul writing to these bishops? And the answer that they come up with is because there are no bishops in the 50s, uh, in the 50, you know, 55 AD time frame, there's no bishops. All we have historically are the following sources uh, to that time frame. We have the New Testament, and then later, you know, with Ignatius and some others, we have what's called uh, the documents of the apostolic fathers. And then even later, we have historically what we call the rise of the episcopacy. The episcopacy is what we call it. And so, uh, once again, we have the New Testament historically. We have the Apostolic Fathers. They're going to come later, around 100, 110 AD. And then we have the rise of the, of the bishopric, of the rise of the episcopacy. And when do bishops arise in early Christianity? Well, we just don't know. This whole thing with, with bishops really starts with Judaism. And remember, Christianity comes out of Judaism. The first Christians were Jews. 
And so the model that they use to run their, their church or their gathering, their ecclesia, their, their following, the model that they use was Judaism. And so because of this, you know, in the, in the early church, they had a, a council of elders. You would go and you would, there would be a council of elders and these would choose, you know, the first among them to, to rule or to be uh, overseers, episcopos. That's where we get the word episcopal. That's where we get the word bishop. And these bishops would would work with the church. And so I'm just going to say, I don't know. We don't know historically. But what we think is that in early Christianity, there were early churches, very small gatherings, house gatherings of men and women and children. And then later, over time, these house churches grew and there would be elders in them and that these elders were appointed to be a bishop. But we think that this wasn't happening in the early church, in the early 50s and 40s. Uh, but like I said, we're going to look at evidence both sides here. But uh, we don't have a lot of footings here. So what are our footings? And this is where, you know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of things we just don't know. Um, but this is where the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Timothy and Titus, are generally considered deuteropauline or, or not essentially written by Paul but maybe by one of his followers who was faithful, who took many of his counsels and, and put them in writing. Uh, but we guess that this was probably not the case in the, in the sense that the, the part about bishops, because Paul is not addressing bishops in his authentic letters anywhere. In the authentic Pauline epistles, Paul is not addressing bishops. That's important. And this is a lot to unpack here, but typically... In scholarship, there are seven epistles, typically in scholarship, that are considered uh, authentic Pauline epistles. You've got probably the earliest would be 1 Thessalonians, right around 50 AD. And then you have Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, or Philemon, depending on who you talk to, 2 Corinthians, and Romans. These are all in the 50s. These epistles are not written to bishops. If you read them, it's just not happening. So the argument is probably bishops are a later thing that develops. So when does it develop and what's going on? And then what's the argument for bishops? I want to I want to say that too. I want to say there's arguments on both sides. And this is the beauty of scholarship. It's a problem in the sense of sometimes we want to wrap our hands around, okay, what's real? And one thing I've learned is the more you learn, the more you don't know. So we're going to begin and end with, I don't know, and we'll try to be brief and try not to bore you, but, but here we go. So the DDK, the DDK is a text that talks about bishops. And it's one of the first, in my opinion, one of the earliest Christian documents that really unpacks this, probably textualized around the time of Timothy. Uh, but this is a text that doesn't make it into the canon. It was read everywhere in the early church. It was very much used. And it was believed to be an apostolic teaching. And you can you can read the translation of it. Just Google DDK. And it, the best way to look it up is just to, to write it at, as it sounds. I When I first read it before the internet, I called it the Didache. And no one corrected me because there was no internet. You couldn't you know look at these pronunciations and you just go to the library and read the Didache. But it's... D-I-D-A-C-H-E, and you can Google it, you can trans you can read the translation, and it's awesome stuff. So in the 15th chapter of the D uh, this is what it says. It says, Therefore, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, 
seek men, men meek, and not lovers of money. Truthful and proven, for they render to you the service of prophets and teachers. Despise them not, therefore, for they are your honored ones, together with the prophets and teachers. And you can read more. But essentially, in that document, it's this notion of you're to appoint them. You're to choose them. And that's really how the episcopos, the overseers, the the shepherds, and the flock were uh, assigned in, in ancient Christianity, we think. That's what was going on in Judaism. You would choose an overseer or the episcopos, and he would be uh, one amongst the presbyters, the, the elders. Later, uh, or right about this time, Ignatius writes about bishops. And Ignatius is kind of a big deal. In traditional Christianity, Ignatius was considered really closely associated with the Apostle John. Uh, there was another guy named Polycarp, and he was considered a convert and an associate of John as well. And these individuals are going to be called the Apostolic Fathers. The, the big three, in my opinion, would be Ignatius, Polycarp, and Clement. And these guys wrote stuff down. And they were considered uh, authoritative. Um, they were bishops and leaders of their local communities. And Ignatius is really concerned with unity, and he's worried that some bishops are being thrown out by local congregations, being rejected. Uh, and he just says, you know, that's not good. We need to listen to our bishop. We need to have unity. And a lot of these ideas of disunity and disharmony, or what I call fractionalization, it's happening all through the first few decades of Christianity. There's multiple Christianities. Christianity wasn't this one monolithic thing that was just totally orthodox and everybody believed the same thing, and we were all on the same page. And, you know, that, that that was my early, as I was early studying Christianity many, many years ago, that was kind of my conception, is that, that there was this one thing. And as I've studied over the years, I've come to learn that there were multiple different ways to view Jesus, and there were all kinds of opinions, and, like I say, multiple Christianities. And so Ignatius is really concerned with all these divisions, and so he writes a letter And in that letter, and I'll put it in the show notes because we're not going to read all of this, but he says, see that you follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ follows the father and the presbytery as ye would the apostles and the presbytery, the presbytery, that means elders and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop, wherever the bishop is or wherever the bishop shall appear. There let the multitude of the people also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church, the universal church. This phrase is used early on in Christianity. Whatsoever the bishop shall approve of, that is also pleasing to God, so that everything is done that may be secure and valid. So to, to Ignatius, and, and I'm going to you know interpret this, I think what he's saying is there's Without the bishop, we don't have a church. So if you're going to go off on your own, you're going to go teach your own thing, then you're not the, you're not the church, and you're not the Catholic church. And what what he what that phrase means is universal Christian church. We're trying to move towards orthodoxy. We're trying to establish something that we can all get on the same page with and agree with. And we've got to get rid of the fractionalization that's happening in the early church. And so to him, apart from the bishop, there is no church. In another letter he writes, he says, without the bishop, you should do nothing. And then later he says, apart from these, there is no church. 
He who does anything apart from the bishop, such as a man, is not pure in his conscience. So that's Ignatius. These bishops, the episcopos, the overseers, they followed Jesus. And in some cases, the the presbyters, the elders, were considered co-equal with the bishops. In fact, out of the elders or presbyters, an overseer was chosen to lead this group. And like I said earlier, this comes out of Judaism. This is the faith tradition of the early Christians. And so they move with this tradition and they continue it. And this is way back. This idea of elders and choosing an overseer comes back centuries before Christ, probably back to the time of Alexander the Great, as uh, Jews organized themselves and established houses of religion. And so the issue is, well, what does the New Testament teach? The New Testament, by and large, is absent from the idea of bishops. Other than the pastorals, we have Jesus in the Gospels. He has his special witnesses. They're out in the country sharing the message that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah, the one who can redeem us from sin and death. And this is the message of much of the New Testament. And even now in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if you study a little bit of our history here, in the, in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or is what historians call Mormon history, uh, our version, what we have today in 2019, our version of the bishop is not necessarily something that Joseph Smith inaugurated. Uh, this current notion of bishops comes from an Episcopalian model that Brigham Young established. I mean, he's totally okay to do this. He's the, he's the pr- president of the church. He can do this. But if you study uh, Mormon history early on in Nauvoo and in, in Kirtland, we have like a bishop who's uh, presiding over the church. But this, this idea that we have bishops today and the way that's organized today is, is a more modern uh, formation of bishops. And Brigham Young instituted this, and it's highly effective, and it's organized really well. But what's convincing is, back to history on, on this, is that if you read 1 Corinthians, uh, Romans, Galatians, you see Paul's not addressing bishops. Um, he's not encouraging the bishops in local flocks to straighten out the flocks. He's writing to people in those churches and warning them of dangers, false teachings, all kinds of problems. But there seems to be little structure as far as the local communities go in what we consider authentic Pauline epistles. And so uh, once the Apostolic Fathers come around, first and second century, and like I said, I mentioned before, but again, they're Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and Polycarp of Smyrna. Uh, They have codified instruction regarding a lot of things, like how we're going to run the church, the sacraments, the order, and those kinds of things. Now, it's going to take centuries, but essentially, over time, bishops are going to have councils, and they're going to talk to themselves, and they're going to, they're going to write letters to each other, and they're going to issue opinions and come up with decisions. And these councils, I believe, come out of rabbinical Judaism. In the Talmud, we, we read that one council is good, Three is better, but a majority ruled. And this is kind of how the church was governed early on after the first century. And it's how the synagogue was run. And we see some of this. And this is where I'm going to I'm going to say, OK, here's some evidence for bishops. Here's some evidence that, OK, maybe there were bishops right after Jesus dies, because we see this in Acts 15. In Acts 15, and it's complicated because tradition says in Acts 15 that James the just is the bishop of Jerusalem, that he's in charge. But it doesn't say that in the text. But that's kind of how we read it. We read the scriptures through the lens of our time period. And so we live in a time period where we have bishops 
And, you know, if you're Catholic or if you're Episcopalian and, you know, Christians outside of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, different faith traditions, we read the scriptures with the lens of our lives. And we sometimes we do what I call a misreading of the text. But if you carefully read Acts 15, nowhere in there does it say that James is the bishop. It doesn't say that. But where do we get that? Where does that come from? That comes from an early Christian historian named Eusebius. Uh, Eusebius uh, was a bishop. Uh, he was a he was many call him like the father of Christian history. He lived during the time of Constantine, and if you've never read about Constantine or heard of him, he was an emperor in Rome that really put Christianity on the map because Constantine, in the fourth century, so in the early three hundreds A.D., uh, he converted, we believe, to Christianity, and Constantine made it so. That uh, with the Edict of Milan, that you know it's not good to kill Christians anymore. It's, we're going to outlaw that. But then later, he married Christianity to the state, and it became one. Like Christianity and the state became one, and there were all kinds of gifts given to the to the Christian Church, and uh, tax money was put in, and basically made it so Christianity became the thing and unified the empire. A bunch of stuff. We'll do a podcast on we can do multiple podcasts on Constantine, but. If you read Eusebius, and you can read it in Ecclesiastical History, and he is a huge Constantine fan. He loves him. And Eusebius writes the history, and he may have access to records we don't have. I mean, we've lost so many records. And so I want to just say this, like, we don't know. Like, maybe he had records. Maybe Eusebius was making this up. Maybe this was oral tradition. I don't know. But what he writes is, is that James was the bishop in Jerusalem. And in my opinion, of course, he's going to say this because he's reading back into history, uh, basically because that's what's going on in his lifetime. And he's on the side of the winners, the side that is determined that it's the bishops that are going to, get, that are going to carry on the tradition of the apostles. It's the bishops that are uh, basically, as it were, carrying the torch. And the torch continues. The light has never been dimmed in Eusebius's view. And Constantine's the guy to make sure that the torch keeps going. And so everything he sees... Uh, is through that lens, and he's in a position of power and authority. But if you read Acts 15, do a careful reading of it, it's not going to say that James is the bishop in Jerusalem, but like I said, maybe Eusebius has access to records we don't have. Like, we just don't know. And so early on in the, in the Roman Empire, each Christian church is self-contained. And what I mean by that is, in early church history, if you were the bishop of Antioch, and someone else was the bishop of Rome, and someone was a bishop in Jerusalem, uh, it wasn't ruled over, these three churches would not be ruled over by one ruler. They each were self-contained, and so the bishop kind of had to say in that local community. It wasn't until later that one bishop becomes in charge of like the whole thing. And so early on for centuries, it, this was self-contained. And so even if you read, if you've ever studied the history of the Nicene Creed, it's a, it's a really famous uh, creed where bishops voted, they had a council, and they tried to decide on the nature of God. Well, you know, like I said, we could probably do a whole podcast just on that. Um, it's clearly uh, these bishops are autonomous, and they have uh, control over their local congregation, and it seems to be more like a council and less like one person dictating what's to be said. Now, that's complicated because Constantine is going to say to Arius, hey, you know what? You need to uh, basically sign off on this or you're out. But like I said, that's another podcast. Now, all this is tentative. And so I want to just 
throw another argument in here really quick. And it comes from Elaine Pagels. And she's written about this, about the issue with bishops and authority in her book, The Nasa Gospels. And right in the beginning of her book, uh, she, she writes this. Why did Orthodox Christians in the second century insist on a literal view of a resurrection and reject all other views as heretical? I suggest that we cannot answer this question adequately as long as we consider the doctrine only in terms of its religious content. But when we examine its practical effect on the Christian movement, we can see, paradoxically, that the doctrine of bodily resurrection also serves as an essential political function. It it legitimizes the authority of certain men who claim to exercise exclusive leadership over the churches as the successors of the Apostle Peter. From the second century, the doctrine has, has served to validate the apostolic succession of bishops, the basis of papal authority to this day. Gnostic Christians who interpret resurrection in other ways have a lesser claim to authority. When they claim priority over the Orthodox, they are denounced as heretics. Such political and religious authority developed in a most remarkable way. As we have noted, diverse forms of Christianity flourished in the early years of the Christian movement, what I call fractionalization. Hundreds of rival teachers all claimed to teach the true doctrine of Christ and denounce one another as frauds. Christians in churches scattered from Asia to Greece, Jerusalem and Rome split into factions and argued over church leadership, all claimed to represent the authentic tradition. She goes on later. That's basic. That, that's right at the beginning of her book, uh, The Gnostic Gospels. It's on page six and seven in, in, my, in my version. Um, but essentially what she says is this. She says uh, the view of resurrection comes down to you know, we've seen him, listen to us, and because we've seen him, meaning the resurrected Jesus, we have authority. And some of the Gnostics, the early, there were a group of Christians called the Gnostic Christians, and they had all kinds of different views, but many of them were descetic, and they believed, didn't believe in a literal bodily resurrection that Paul is going to bash against and say, in 1 Corinthians 15, you're doing it wrong. But the Docetists uh, struggled with that, and they looked at God being outside of matter. And one of the things the Gnostics held up as their authority was that they held secret teaching. They had teachings of Jesus from the 40-day ministry that some of the Orthodox group of Christians that we would consider Orthodox today, that they didn't have. And the Orthodox group laid claim to the tradition of the resurrected Jesus. And we came out of that group. So the Apostolic Father said, we're carrying the same traditional torch. We're, we're carrying the torch of the, of the apostles. And they've seen Jesus. And you don't believe in a resurrection. And so these two groups of Christians were basically fighting over authority and who should be listened to. And it was a political argument. And so the argument of who saw Jesus's body, it became this political argument that established authority. And the Gnostics who claimed secret teaching and the Apostolic Fathers who claimed authority from the bishops were like two sides of this coin. And so that's that's one reason why the pastoral epistles have such support in Catholic circles. This is what we call the doxology of both Catholic and Episcopal tradition. And so if you go to many churches, you can hear this phrase used all the time, and it goes like this. As it was in the beginning, and so shall it be, worlds without end. And what that phrase means is essentially this. As there were bishops in Jesus' day, so there are bishops today, and there will always be bishops. And so this early fight and early Christianity over authority uh, 
basically was lost by the Gnostics. They lost, and like I said, we'll do a whole podcast on Gnosticism sometime. There were some things in there that were just way off, in my opinion, but there were some things that they had that were good. But out of this, out of this fight, out of this fight of authority, uh, the early Christians had to establish a way to try to maintain teaching and try to have some kind of orthodoxy, some kind of thinking that we could all be on the same page. And bishops were crucial. Bishops in the early century were so critical because of the power vacuum that occurred. When the apostles died, there was a power vacuum. And later, later Christians will write things like, you know, what happened to the gifts? What happened to the gifts of the spirit? What happened to prophecy? And the bishops are kind of this, this substitute for apostolic leading. And they stand in this vacuum and it takes some time, but they form councils and then later over Christian history, eventually they have a bishop who becomes first among equals, and then he becomes the head bishop. And then later there'll be some arguments with bishops in Constantinople versus Rome, and they'll fight over, you know, who really has supremacy. But this podcast is really just about early, early Christianity and were there bishops. If I had to pick a side, I'd probably say no, that in the early 50s, when, when Paul's writing Galatians, he's not writing to bishops. When he's writing First Corinthians, he's not writing to bishops. But these became later. Uh, they came into effect later. Now, what about James? Was he a bishop? Was he the bishop of Jerusalem? I think he was. I think that, to me, that's pretty clear. I th- I'm going to side with Eusebius, but like I said, I don't know. The text doesn't say it. So if you're going to strictly go with the text, you got to say, doesn't say either way. Uh, but... Maybe Eusebius had access to records we don't have, but I don't know. So I'm going to begin and end with this. I don't know. I hope this was worth your time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Talking Scripture.